This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. It's great to see you folks here today, and and we just have such an incredibly special service here for you today as we we look to close I Choose. And again, like it's, I like the New Church Live audience. I was telling somebody it's a very fun audience, so I'm out there asking people what their favorite breed of dog is, and somebody who shall remain nameless but sitting right over here said a hot dog. (laughs) Amen. Pass the mustard, brother. All good, all good. So great to have you. Could we big, give a big giant hello to our online audience? Just a big hello. One, two, three. <laughs> Welcome to all those who are joining us online. Great to have so many of you here today. And, and today we're, we're pulling together a really fascinating story. And it, it's interesting with the Bible because we can look at these stories that are thousands of years old and we kind of scooch across the surface of the water like skipping a stone. And, and then when you start to break it apart, the sheer brilliance of these stories really, really can start to stir something in our lives. And this is a story about a man named Nicodemus. And here's the way we're doing it. We're looking at the topic of I choose. First week, we looked at the topic to ask. Last week, we looked at the topic to be reborn. This week, we're looking at the topic to to live. What does it mean to really live? So we, so we have these things, all right? We've asked. We're feeling this sense of rebirth. We're looking for, here's your little prop. We're looking for faith to come alive. Is that good or one? I found that downstairs this morning. Um, we're looking for faith to come alive for us in a new way. And, and what does it look like when we actually start to live, you know, on the backside of all this? Now, I want to tell you, because we, we have a lot of first-time people, I want to just give you a little background to the story of Nicodemus, like where this story comes from. And it comes from this beautiful, beautiful painting we're going to see. It's a story of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a very learned clergy member. He was at the very, very top of society. Very, very top. And somehow life wasn't working for him. Even though he had all the answers, the power, the prestige, the possessions, he had it all. But somehow something wasn't working. And so what this story is about is him very humbly coming to see Christ, to literally sit at his feet. And Christ at that time would have been thought of as simply a peasant. To sit at his feet and learn and listen. and Start to understand what rebirth really looks like. And it's a beautiful story. It's a story where we start to see three Ps. Three Ps that kind of flow forward. The first one that we looked at was the idea that we all have this projection of the way we think God is. This projection, we think, yeah, this is what God actually looks like. And Nicodemus would have had that, a view of God that was very legalistic, mean God that you sort of had to assuage his anger by following the rules perfectly. And that wasn't working. So Christ comes along as a projectile and actually hits that, hits that image of God Christ, God incarnate, hits that image, it blows apart, and now there's space for a new view of God, where actually we start to be reborn. And that's where we start to learn to participate in our lives in a very different way. Now Nicodemus hears this talk about being reborn, and he's such a literalist, Christ saying you need to be reborn. Nicodemus, being a literalist, goes like, well, what do you mean? I gotta go back to my mom's tummy? He's there, no, 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 no. See who can remember from last week. He said, being reborn is like the wind, like the wind. Can we all say wind? Wind, it's like the wind. It was a, I mean, what a a crazy good answer. (laughs) 
It's like the wind. It's just, it's, it's here and then it just, it just blows through and we can just learn to just appreciate it. We can see that spirit moving all the time. From the person who opens the door for you down at Wawa when you're getting your morning coffee before you preach at 6.30 a.m., just saying. To, to those kindnesses that we see all the time in the world. We can start to see the wind. And, and folks, listen to this. It's always your choice to see it. I mean, we had Mark very bravely last week talk about how he saw it with a flower. And by the way, some very tough guys this week sent me pictures of flowers when they saw it too. Because we can, we can see it all over the place and it's, a, it's indeed a beautiful thing. So we have to talk then about what does this engagement look like? Like Christ says, the wind's gonna blow, all right? So we have that story. And we, we see how this ends, this great talk with Nicodemus. Well, how did that impact his life? Like, does he just disappear from the Bible after that? Does he have this great conversation, then he's gone, unknown to all of history? No, we actually get to hear a story about him again at the end of the Bible. Now, Christ only preached publicly for three years. So we have Nicodemus showing up at the beginning of the story, probably a year into it. Probably two years later, we see Nicodemus showing up again. And, and this is after Christ has died. For those of you who aren't aware that, you know, the, the, the basic Christian story, uh, Christ was executed by the Romans. Uh, you know, they felt that he was gaining too much power. Uh, the religious authorities were part of that too. They were also very concerned uh, about the power that he was accruing. So he gets, he gets crucified, he dies, he, and this is where he gets put into a tomb. And then we know about the famous Easter story, which we celebrate every year, where he, where he goes up into heaven, where he's risen. And I want you to listen to this story. And this is where Nicodemus is showing up. He's showing up with a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And the two of them do something that is just breathtakingly beautiful and shows how this rebirth worked. And again, if we read the story, we, we may read it so fast we miss it. So I'm going to read it. They're going to show the lines up here and then I want to talk about what it means. So here it is. This is from John 19. Joseph, he, he or Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Jesus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, now at that time, they didn't embalm bodies, but what they would do would be they would coat them in like a perfume. 75 pounds is a lot. And then they would wrap the body up. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus in it. So folks, let's, let's, let's really like get into this story, right? So here's Nicodemus, again, this man who had been way at the very top of society. And he starts listening to Jesus, his heart starts to change, he starts to see the world very differently. He starts, please listen carefully, he starts to understand healing in a very different way. His whole view of faith begins to shift from a view of an angry God bent on making sure you follow the rules to a loving God, to a loving God, whose primary concern is to be in relationship. Whose primary concern is to be in relationship. 
And he would have tracked it. I mean, Nicodemus was at a position in his life where he no doubt would have tracked how Christ's life was weaving throughout, the, you know, what's modern day Israel, but then it was called the Holy Land or Judea, would have, would have tracked it. And he would have been fascinated by this. And it's interesting, right? Because here's this guy who, who kind of had it all, had seen Christ at night. And then he hears and he sees Christ executed. He would have been very very aware of that death. And so now he's got a choice. Now he's got a simple choice. What is he going to do? Now I imagine maybe, maybe he had heard these beautiful words earlier from John. This is Christ. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy. This is my command. Look at this, folks. Like, love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. And the number one command, folks, always is to to love. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is, is thinking and planning. And this last word so beautiful. No, I've named you friends. It's a beautiful line. right? And, and you have to let that sink in. I've named you friends. Let's come back to Nicodemus' story. Like, like maybe, I don't know, but maybe these words were rattling around in his head. Maybe he's like, yeah, I, I, I'm starting to see what this rebirth looks like. And, and here's this, this incredible leader, this man much more brilliant and loving than I could ever hope to be. And here he's treating me as an equal and he's saying, it's all about love. Like have love for each other the way I love you. That's how you'll know that, 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 that you're a follower. Not by some great, you know, litmus test of a, of an, of a, you know, multiple choice answer or a creed, but that you love. That's the ultimate test. That you love. He said, if you do that, if you get that, you understand they aren't just my disciples. It's not like Christ isn't saying, I'm the master and you're the servant. That's the old view of God. He's saying, you're my friend. Want to hang out some silence with that word. He's saying, you're my friend. Wow. When we think of the history, folks, of that, you know, and hopefully it gives you chills, where Christ's saying, you're my friend. God's saying, you're my friend. No doubt that shifted Nicodemus's world completely. Nicodemus originally had been so afraid of his reputation that when he went to visit Christ, what time of day did he go to visit him? Nighttime. Totally terrified, didn't want anybody to see. Now he's reached a point where he so gets the message that he actually goes to the Roman governor who had just had Christ executed and says, with Joseph of Arimathea, could we please have the body? Could we please have the body? And just even think of the courage of that. Right? Think of the courage of that. And then he takes the body, folks, and picture it. He gently wraps the body, ceremonially cleans the body. Now, whose job? You think back 2,000 years ago. I mean, this was in the days before funeral parlor directors. Whose job would it have been historically to take care of a deceased person? Whose job would have been to wrap bodies, take care of bodies, clean them, and bury them? Whose job, folks? 
family. Like, family. What a shaft. Where now he's he's doing this, and he's doing it with great courage, and he's, he's doing it as family. Can you see the rebirth there? Can you see where Nicodemus totally reborn over how he had seen the world? It's a beautiful image, I believe. And, and, and the beautiful part of it is I think we function best. Like Christ is constantly saying, look, this is where you function best. We function best in the big. We all say big together. We function best in the big, big in the big narrative. We function best in these, in these bigger stories that we're being called to. That's where we really, really become human. And we can see in this chart the basic flip that he had. It starts with this, folks. Notice it's a beautiful line in here. Christ did not all of a sudden ask him to be a different religion than what he was. No, he was buried in, in, in with Jewish custom. Sorry about that. He was buried in accordance with Jewish custom. And then we go to this chart, but we see that it has all shifted. Before, his view of God before was very much legalistic. After, very much a relationship. Before, popular. The idea was you needed to be constantly seen as good. It was the performance principle. You always had to be seen as good. Now it's about being principled. To live with integrity regardless of the cost. And there's a, there would have been a huge cost for him. I mean, again, like he would have seen Christ crucified. We would have seen Christ crucified for espousing the very way of life that Nicodemus was coming into. Before a known order obeying the law, now a need, now heed a higher calling. Before judgment and punishment, now love, redemption, and return. And it's always that returning us to our true selves. Before a completely utilitarian logic of straight power, Now an inverse logic. Give to receive. And this is a big one. Powerless to be powerful. This complete inverse logic. The world's starting to turn upside down. Before very much on command, now the idea of binding up wounds. As the band comes out, think about that image. You know, and I think that image, again, of, of, of Nicodemus kind of binding up wounds is, is so beautiful. And it's, it's poignant in ways that are hard as a pastor maybe to get around. Like, I wish I could give you like the sentence that somehow captured it, and I can't. What I can tell you is that there's beauty there. Incredible beauty. As we start to see this, this, this treatment of Christ and this, this family approach to things. A very different view of God. A very different view of love. And when we come back after this song, we're going to get to hear a beautiful story that kind of pulls all this together so we can see that it's, it's not just a story thousands of years old. It's a story alive and well in 2016. So it's really an honor. Like one of the things I had, I had done when I, you know, I work in these series months ahead of time when we were putting this together, probably about six months ago, you know, started thinking. I thought, oh, you know, I'd love to get like an all-star, would be Bronwyn Mayor Henry. 
And she's a wonderful person, has an incredible story that she was very, very happy to share with us today. I know you're going to enjoy it. We're going to use Bronwyn's story as a way to pull this all together. So in true New Church Live fashion, so we get a little loose, if you could all stand up. I believe everyone in this life deserves a standing ovation. So please give Bronwyn a standing ovation as she arrives out here. Thank you, Chuck. That I'll remember this moment. Thank you. <laughs> so my name is Bronwyn Henry, and I am a new artist. And for me, the creative process has been so transformative that anytime someone invites me to share about it, I have to say yes. So when Chuck invited me, it was it was a definite yes, even though I feel a little bit nervous. So thank you for having me. Before. I share my story, my experience of transformation. I, I just want to acknowledge the people in the room, the people listening, the parts of us that are not in a place of transformation, the parts of us that are suffering, that are struggling, that are heartbroken, and rebirth feels really far away. I just want to acknowledge that place and that it's real and it feels like rebirth is impossible. For me, my story began a couple years ago, three and a half years ago. I uh, had two small children who are watching here, and I recently had moved, and I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the responsibilities in my life. And it was at this point that I received an unexpected diagnosis of thyroid cancer. And what I have learned now is that crisis and transformation look the same at the beginning. So I was in this place of crisis. I was very distressed by this diagnosis. It was a significant journey for me and my family, financially, physically. Um, it, it, was, it was a really trying time. So I'm doing really well today, and I'm feeling super grateful for that. And in that moment, I, there was a lot of uncertainty, and this was a diagnosis that kind of changed the path of my life and my expectations of how my life would unfold. Part of the treatment for me was to have surgery, and then after the surgery, I learned that the cancer was also in my lymph nodes, so I had to do this uh, radioactive iodine treatment where you swallow a radioactive pill to kill off any other lingering cancer cells. I'm going to talk more about my experience with the surgery a little bit later, but swallowing this pill was a big deal for me. I'm someone who does not like to take Tylenol for a headache, so swallowing a radioactive pill sounded like a terrible idea. Um, and part of the context was I would have to be away from people. I would have to be in isolation for seven days so as not to expose them to radiation unnecessarily. So I'd never been alone for seven days, and... I was really nervous. I was very anxious during this time. I ended up choosing to spend that week painting. Now, I think I forgot to say this, but at this point in my life, I hadn't painted in more than three years. I had enjoyed painting in high school and kind of dabbled with creativity, but I had no regular practice. I also decided to paint bigger than I had ever painted before. I bought a three-foot by four-foot canvas, which they're going to put up for you, and I painted 
big. I thought, I'm terrified to swallow this pill. I'm going to add a more fun terror of painting on a really big canvas. So I spent a week alone painting. I probably painted 12 or 14 hour days. And um, what could have been really despairing and really troubling, I could have been focused on would this treatment work and what am I doing to my body and what about side effects and how are my kids doing without me. I could have kind of spiraled into worry and stress, but I was just really focused on painting. And it ended up being this really transformative time for me. I, I think of the image that Chuck shared of Nicodemus wrapping the Lord's body and binding those wounds. And I feel like that's what I really learned during that time was how to hold my life and my experience in compassion. So after this week alone of painting, I thought that it would be my first and last time painting big. I had no concept of how I would paint big in my life. I thought it would be the last time I ever painted a few days in a row. And it was a couple months after the treatment that I started recovering my energy. And when I was feeling better, I remember having this really clear thought that I did not have to have cancer to get time to paint, that I didn't have to have it medically mandated for me to be alone to me have, to, for me to have a restorative practice. So I, when I was feeling better, I chose to keep painting. And I'm really pleased to tell you that at this point in time, so this is three years ago, I have created 140 large paintings. So these are two of them here. And you could see that I have developed both a daily practice and I've kept painting big. There's a lot that I could talk about from this experience. I could tell you about working through feelings of not being good enough. I could talk about facing the fear of the big canvas. I could talk about balancing my job and my roles as a wife and mother and daughter and making time for painting. I could talk about how I spend time in prayer and meditation with each painting. But what I'm going to talk about today is how I've overcome one of the limiting voices that has confronted me in my creative practice. And, and when Chuck invited me to talk and shared about the message, this is what felt most relevant from my experience. So when I'm painting, it's a very joyful, transformative experience. But before I begin, I regularly hear a limiting voice, a voice that pushes against my creativity, a voice that pushes against that wind, that inspiration moving in my life. And the voice says, why in the world are you painting? And what are you going to do with all these paintings? I, you know, I know that there are people suffering in the world, and I'm buying canvases and paint, and I'm painting, and it, it doesn't make sense to part of me. But I have learned that painting is so transformative for me. It expands so much compassion in my heart and in my life that I do it anyway. I paint despite this voice. A mentor said to me, you don't have to know why you're painting. You just keep painting. And when, when Chuck pointed me to the scripture that says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Sounded a lot to me like, you don't know why you're painting, and you don't know what you're going to do with all these paintings. But the wind blows, and you're hearing it, and you're letting it move you. I have found that the blessing is in the discomfort. For me, painting big is part of the blessing, getting out of my 
thinking side of my brain and into my heart. I am obedient to this impulse I feel to paint. I've learned that the reasons will be revealed with time, or maybe they won't, and it, it doesn't matter to me. I will just keep following that impulse. And there have been huge blessings for me. I probably have 140 stories if I sat with each painting that I could tell you about how, how my impulse to paint that painting had a positive impact on my life or someone else's life. But I brought a few examples for you. So one example I have is this impulse I had to paint a life-size tree. I don't know why, but I just thought, it has to be life-size, it has to be really big. So my, in my home, we don't have high ceilings, and I wasn't sure how I was going to do this. And the thought came to me to do a few different canvases, which you see up on the screen. And so I'm working in, at this point, I'm in a corner of our bedroom, and I remember actually laughing as I'm working, like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm moving these canvases around, leaning them against walls, trying to capture this energy I had to create a life-size tree painting. And I think a lot of us can relate to this moment where you think there needs to be a plan. You know, you have an impulse or you feel the wind moving in your life, but you're like, why would I do that? How would that play out? You know, we, we often want a map or we want to know where we're going with a decision. But painting has taught me to just be obedient to that impulse and let everything else figure itself out. So I actually, I named this painting Sacred Impulse because it really felt a strong desire to paint this. And then the next image you'll see, the first time I ever saw this painting all together, as it was created to be, was at the Bernathan College Chapel. Um, they invited me to hang it up there. So I had no plan for it, but it turned out that it has a new home over at the College Chapel. So that was a great moment for me of learning to follow that sacred impulse. Another time I followed the sacred impulse was creating these elephant paintings. I came home from work one day and my children had this big stack of Ranger Ricks. They were from the 1970s. My grandfather, I'm sorry, my husband's father, the children's grandfather, dropped off these Ranger Ricks from 1970s and they were pouring through it and I sat down with them and opened it to this picture of a mother and baby elephant. And I was so moved by this image, I thought, I have to paint this. So I had no idea what I was gonna do with these paintings or why I would paint them, but I started building the canvases and started painting. As I painted, I was really moved by this sense of protection. I felt that I was this baby elephant and the mother elephant was protecting me, that something fragile was happening in my life, and it was just a, a major reminder of divine protection in my life. I didn't know I needed that prayer. I didn't know I needed to meditate on that, but I was drawn to this image, and it really moved me as I was working. In fact, while I was painting, it reminded me of this moment that I want to share with you when I had my surgery to remove my thyroid. And I woke up from surgery, and at first I was really happy to be alive, as you often are when you wake up from surgery. And then I became more attuned to the pain. I had a lot of physical pain. There was a little complication. It made swallowing and breathing very painful. And um, I was in a lot of distress. And even more than the physical pain, uh, my mind was very distressed. 
I think I was facing the shock that this had happened, that I actually had thyroid cancer, and they actually took out my thyroid, and um, I, I was very distressed. I couldn't settle my mind down. I couldn't find rest or peace in this hospital room. And I remember sitting with a friend, she's holding my hand, and she said, it's okay, you know, you're all right, you're safe, it's okay. And I, I sat there, and I, I just kept thinking, there has to be something I could do to feel better, some thought I could have, some list, maybe three points to peace in a hospital room. You know, like there had to be an idea that could help me. But I, I, I've read a lot of scripture, I've read a lot of helpful books, and I could not come across an idea that would help me. And what I realized at 3 a.m., it, it was dark but noisy hospital room, was that I needed to experience love. I needed to be wrapped in love. I didn't need to think about love coming into my life. I needed to let love come into my life. So as I worked on these elephants, this message came back to me, and now I have this great reminder of remembering that we are each being held. And I think when you're going through this rebirth, when you're choosing a new beginning, you're choosing to be brave, to step out, there's something there that needs protection and really needs to be wrapped in love. Also, as I painted, I found myself reflecting on being the mother elephant, you know, that I am called also to protect others, to protect my children, but also my friends and family and, and anyone I run into to protect that fragile part of them that's being reborn. So the final example, just when I think about how following painting has unexpectedly blessed my life is just the painting experience itself. I cannot believe that I've created this many paintings. I cannot believe that I've done a bunch of commissions. And in the commission experience, I hold someone in prayer while I'm painting for them. And so it's become a form of ministry for me that I didn't plan when I started painting big in this period of isolation. I also have had, when I'm selling paintings, I've had a chance to give back to nonprofits who are answering prayers in more practical ways. And I didn't foresee that me painting would lead to me being able to give back in that way. So the wind moved me, continues to move me, and I continue to choose to follow. I continue to choose to follow this creative impulse and to show up. What does this mean for you? What needs new life for you? What would it look like to hear the wind right where you are? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And I'm so grateful. Thank you. I just, I wanted to offer a prayer for each of us as we close here, if you'll bow your heads with me. Dear God, creator, source of hope, source of love, source of life, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for life, even in all its messiness and brokenness. 
Lord, I know you are already here, already holding our hand, already gently leading us. Lord, may we breathe in and feel that holding. May we breathe out and feel that leading. May we remember your invitation to renewal and new life. Lord, give us courage to choose love, courage to choose to begin again, to choose to let the wind move us. Lord, may we remember how you hold tenderly the parts of us that are heartbroken, the parts that don't know how to begin again, the parts that don't know how to break old patterns, the parts that feel alone and stuck. May we feel the comfort of your presence and have no need to know where the wind is coming from or where the wind is going. Lord, may we remember that today, right now, your love and wisdom are all around us. Amen. I just want to say again, thank you so much for Bronwyn. You know, just a great story. And, and, and that idea, folks, again, like love the wind, right? You know, that the, the wind can move and, and we can have these canvases of our life that we get to choose. You know, that's a whole part of this series is I choose. And we get to choose to really live in these kinds of ways. And, 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 and you know, it's easy to think that it all has to be spectacular. It doesn't. You know, much of it is just allowing that spirit to move us and to find that rebirth. So thank you again, Bronwyn, very much. Now the band is going to come out for the last song, and I'm just going to offer a quick prayer, and then they're going to go into the song here. And it's, it's just, again, a prayer for choice. So, so just join me in my final prayer for the series. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together, to think about what does it really mean to say the words, I choose. I choose. And maybe, Lord, at this point, that's as far as it needs to get. Just the simple acknowledgement that we indeed choose. That we indeed choose to the kind of life that we would want to live. That we can choose that path of rebirth. A path, Lord, where life comes together and starts to open in ways that are magnificent. In ways that we can hardly imagine in their beauty. In ways that are unanticipated, even in times of darkness. Remind us, Lord, this week, very simply, that I choose. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv.